Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's bonus episode of The Full 60. This week, we have Scott Wheeler back as part of our monthly prospect series that we've been alternating all season long between Corey Priman and Scott Wheeler, the two prospect writers at The Athletic. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who continues to listen to our podcast and read our work at The Athletic. I know right now sports is so far down the list of priorities, and it, even you know it feels funny at times to talk about uh, you know who who the best defensemen in this year's draft class are or whatever. As Scott and I are going to get into, but I got to tell you, it was it was really it was almost cathartic just to spend an hour talking to Scott, talking about draft prospects, um, talking about risers and fallers from last year's draft if he was to redraft, and and some of the personalities behind his great behind-the-scenes story um, when he went, went to Wisconsin and spent time with Cole Caulfield and that group, that crew over there, um, and taking some Twitter questions and just talking hockey prospects for a second. I mean, we I think we... I think I'm like most of you guys, scared, anxious, don't know what to expect next every time I refresh Twitter. So it was it was fun to do, and I hope you take it that way. And I hope you're able to enjoy this hour-long conversation, or hour-ish long conversation with Scott Wheeler. All right, Scott. Well, I'm a lot going on and a lot not going on. It's it's definitely crazy times. First, how how are you holding up? This has been wild. Yeah, it's been good. I keep having conversations with people in the sort of junior hockey world in particular, where I tend to open with, geez, my day's been crazy, but I can't imagine (laughs) what you guys are going through. Like, it's got to be just a a complete whirlwind. I mean, there's eight people in the USHL head office dealing with this. And it's not that all all that different with the CHL or the CJHL. Hell, the CJHL is basically three or four people that are dealing with this across 10 leagues. So uh, the junior level in particular has just been crazy because there it, there isn't the manpower to deal with the number of parents and players and teams and all these people that are reaching out to them. So it's it's been a, a whirlwind for me, but I can't imagine what it's been like for some of these teams and leagues that are trying to tackle this hour to hour. Yeah, it's pretty wild because, you know, covering the NHL, it's like, okay, the NHL makes their decision and now we, we start looking at timeline and that sort of things. When you're covering prospects and you're covering all these leagues there's a million different scenarios right like what are what's you know I, i've seen some some leagues have just canceled but what's kind of the variance and on how teams are or how leagues are handling this with the caveat that this probably could all change you know in the next five minutes there are some leagues that have just flat out said we're going to follow the nhl's lead so the ushl yeah. is certainly one of them their commissioner last week on the phone basically told me we're doing what they're doing if they come back we're going to come back and we're still going to talk to our communities and talk to the CDC and take everybody's advice, but we're not going to make a move until the NHL does. We're not going to try and get out in front of the NHL or anything like that. Um, so I think there's, there's in, in some way, a league like the USHL is hopeful that they can still return. Obviously, junior hockey in Canada, as far as the CHL goes, the big three leagues here have not yet canceled. The Memorial Cup in Kelowna is still a little bit in limbo. That's at the end of May. So I think they're hoping they might be able to squeeze in a short playoff and still have four or or maybe even expand to eight teams that participate this year in the Memorial Cup and give more teams a shot at it if they get to the 
sort of last weekend in May and feel like they can resume playing. So a, a lot is still very much up in the air. And then obviously the ECHL, due to financial constraints, has actually chosen to get ahead of the AHL and the NHL in canceling their season outright and not sort of moving forward with a pause or a suspension. So um, that's just, I think, speaks to the financial situations of the ownership group in the ECHL. And I was speaking with the owner of the Growlers today and he kind of touched on the fact that, hey, look, we we can't afford to pay our our part-time employees like, say, the, the NHL can or even the AHL can. And we just don't have the financial ability to continue to pay our players as this progresses. So um, it, it's a sort of sticky situation for people at the junior and the sort of low-level pro levels, I think, just because the finances are not where people want them to be as it is. And a lot of these teams struggle to break even as it is. So now you've lost... 10, 15 regular season games and maybe a deep playoff run for some of these teams. And that's a huge, huge, huge financial burden on ownership groups that are already in limbo in terms of literally opening and closing their doors on a season to season basis in some cases. So uh, it's a bit of a shit show right now, I think, at the junior levels and, and certainly at the low level pro levels where money just isn't what it is at the NHL. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, you don't really worry about the player salaries at the NHL level, but uh, you know you, that's the challenge with with a league like the ECHL, where these guys aren't making a ton to begin with, and mm. now you so you you assume they're you know paycheck to paycheck or whatever that looks like for you know a twenty four year old playing in the ECHL, um, and now you're you're telling them it's season's over, um, and you know and it, I can't imagine it's easy to go pick up seasonal work right now. Like that's. That's you know that's a real problem. Yeah, and they've all got to they've all got to get home too. I mean, right. Particularly when I was speaking with Growler's ownership earlier today, like they they have to get everybody off the island. There is no way off the island other than flights. So if airports or airspaces are shut down in the next couple of days and players are there, not only are the players not getting a paycheck and they have apartments that they have to pay for in St. John's, Newfoundland, but mm-hmm. they also can't get home to their families. They they are literally isolated without work and without money. And without an income and, and all of that. So uh, it, it's a complicated situation for sure. And I, in terms of just the, the pay, I mean, you're talking about some players who are on day-to-day contracts. That's the structure of the standard player contract in the ECHL. It's literally day-to-day. If you don't practice or you don't have a team meeting, you don't qualify for your day's salary. So um, players are moved hmm. around a lot as it is. And some players are playing one week and not playing the next week. And now they're all indefinitely without pay, and, and their pay as it is is $500, $600, $700 a week. So these guys aren't taking home big paychecks. Some of them have wives and young kids, and it, it's it's crazy. It's I can't imagine being in their shoes and having the end of the season. And on the flip side, you have to have at least some level of sort of appreciation for what the owners are also going through. And obviously, you, you want to see all of the players get paid and all of the staff get paid, but bankruptcy is a a real factor for some of these teams so Hmm. it's not that simple yeah um so i'm going to add this caveat just once because you know i think this goes with everything we 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 talk about right now in the sports world like i I realize there's much more important things than you know we're going to talk about scouting and impact in hockey i realize when there's people sick so like that Hmm. this is all done through that lens of sensitivity but i am interested because we've now lost the u18s um like you said we don't know what the memorial cup is going to look like there's a huge chunk of the you know the prospect schedule that has now just been deleted or is about to be 
Um, in your conversations with teams and with scouts, have, do you have any sense of how they're going to make up to that? Is it uh, is there a lot of review of old video, or what's what's the approach from here on out in that world? Teams will really be digging in on video. Um, yeah. They will want to make sure that the book that they have on these guys is more thorough through this point in the season than it's ever been, just to make sure that there aren't a lot of holes. Because, quite frankly, the the back half of this season, as much as people like to say that U18s doesn't or doesn't or shouldn't matter because it's such a small sample size, and we should have enough of a book on these players as it is, and all of those things are partially true. But playoffs matters for these kids. I mean, you look back at last year, Connor McMichael, who's now one of the top prospects on the planet he slipped into the sort of back half of the first round of the Washington Capitals, largely because teams felt like he didn't play well in the playoffs. And despite a really good regular season, he was pushed onto the fourth line in the playoffs and he was moved from his natural position at center to the wing. And he just didn't look like himself. And that has a real impact. I mean, Raphael Lavoie last year went on a bender with the Halifax Mooseheads in the playoffs and it improved his draft stock dramatically. So uh, there's there's definitely a, a sort of huge window of opportunity for some of these kids. The U18s do matter for scouts and evaluators to see some of the kids who've maybe been playing in lesser leagues, finally playing in sort of best-on-best best scenarios and rising to the occasion in big games. And all of those things do truly matter to NHL teams and NHL scouts. So now teams are, I think, going to be going back and, and really digging in on video and making sure, hey, this isn't a break for us like it might be for the rest of the hockey world. We've still got a draft in June or July or August right. or whenever the draft ends up getting held. And Alexi Lafreniere and all these kids are still going to get picked. They're not going to have to wait until they're 19 to get picked. So it's still going to move ahead, and they've got to make sure that everything is particularly buttoned down. And maybe that means going back to the beginning of the season and, and just amplifying your viewings and getting more tape on these guys than maybe you ever would have previously. Right. And it, it, it seems like ages ago now, but I was at the GM's meetings in Boca Raton a couple of weeks ago asking GMs about this. And I, I liked how Kelly McCrimmon put it when I asked if the U18s would be canceled. He's like, look, it's not the whole evaluation. He, and he, he said in his mind, it's almost like, you know, the final grade or the final test you take in high school mm-hmm. or whatever. It's, it, you know, maybe only 20% of your grade, but it's still an important part of the, you know, the equation. And now that's gone. Like that's whatever that percentage is. Yeah. And even if that's small for some teams, if a kid falls flat, if you have a star player who puts up zero points in six games, that that still does matter to people. And if you have a kid who goes off and puts up 12 points in six games, that's a, that's a big boost for him, whether you, you want to take it with a grain of salt or not. It's, it's still definitely the sort of last final impression and, implicitly or explicitly there's a bias that's created from those final viewings that you have of a kid and it's also just a chance for people to continue to talk it's a chance for scouts to talk to the agents of these players that are there and to sit down with the players and spend some more face-to-face time with them and that has now all been stripped away and the combine will probably be in jeopardy which is another chance like it or not for these teams to get to know these kids a little bit better so one way or another, teams are probably going into the draft this year with maybe a little bit of a thinner book on these players, and it will be interesting in five years to look back on this draft and say, hey, were there were there more mistakes made in this draft just because teams didn't have as much of a book on the players as they're used to, or did teams take more risk because they, they weren't sure how the draft was going to play out and where a player might slot for other teams, and they just wanted to get out in front of it and get their guy earlier and all of that's going to be at play in this draft more than in other drafts, I think, especially if cancellations sort of ramp up here in the next two or three weeks. I was just thinking that I like it. It will be not to get way ahead of ourselves, but like five years from now, we may look back and say, "Hey, the fact that people weren't overreacting to the U18s 
or some interview at the combine because I like I, I'm sure that happens right and it ends up mm-hmm. hurting te- like it, it may say hey they didn't have enough of a book and people messed up or maybe they didn't overreact to like some late information and people ended up having better drafts like I, I, you can't rule that out yeah no question I mean if Matt Barzell is in this draft does he fall 10 slots like he did because he was too cocky at his combine interviews, <laughs> right. right like it's this this does happen. It does have a real impact. Barzell's always the one I use because it's, it's common knowledge at this point that P- teams just felt like he was kind of a dick in his interviews. Yeah. <laughs> and he slipped as a result, and now he's one of the best players in the world. So, um, yeah, it, it, you're right. I, I never really thought about how it could go the other direction. Maybe a, a, a smaller book and less face-to-face time can actually be good in some cases. That's funny. I think of the U.S. team last year. I, you started hearing at the Combine – they were there was some arrogance and they rubbed teams the wrong way and then when the draft was held guys ended up slipping further than you would have thought you know aside from jack hughes but you know i'm wondering boy i wonder if teams just didn't love him during the combine or what happened there and it's that's you never know what happens at, at the last second when you're weighing those decisions yeah no draft and no doubt i mean you <laughs> if you look back at that draft you could easily say that trevor zegers was slipped too far or cole yeah. caulfield slipped too far like there was there were a number of players there who are big, big personalities or perceived to be big personalities, and that can rub people the wrong way for sure. Does it benefit uh, anybody? Like, is there? Do you sit there and look at the prospect list and say this person's either hurt or benefits from if you know the evaluation ending now? Like, this person's in such a good place, or this person could have used the opportunity to win over some scouts heading into the draft. I think, yeah, there are certainly some players that come to mind. I mean. Uh, we sort of surveyed people for questions on Twitter before this. And I saw just before we hopped on that there was a question about Hendricks Lapierre and he's a kid who's missed basically the entire season due to concussions. He had a brilliant performance uh, internationally this summer and really grabbed everyone's attention and was expected to be a top 10 pick and then suffered some really, really just awful concussions consecutively early on in the season and hasn't played since. And, there's probably a little bit of a, honestly, a leveling of the playing field for kids like that who are, have spent part of the season injured just because now everybody else also has a smaller book and they're not getting that runway to, to sort of play and build their case and uh, build confidence in teams that they know they've got the right guy. And on the flip side, it also give, puts no pressure on players like Hendricks to come back and play. And Hendricks is right. on one of the top teams in the QMJHL that could well go on a Memorial Cup run. And now if the Memorial Cup is canceled and all that kind of thing, there's zero pressure on him. He can just get healthy, spend the summer sort of hitting reset and... Uh, there could be a real benefit for a player like Lapierre. Um, other than that, I mean, maybe some of the younger guys, it might hurt more than the older guys. Like when I think of Lafreniere and Marco Rossi, they're on the brink of being eligible for last year's draft. So they're on the older side and people have been watching them for longer and they've had more time to develop into their sort of peak here this season than some of those younger kids have. And some younger kids, I mean, I think of Nick Robertson with the Leafs really hitting mm-hmm. his stride late in last year and, those younger kids really begin to come into their own in the playoffs more than some of those other players who who sort of plateau a little bit more. So certainly there are players in this draft who are are sort of late birthdays who you would you would they're probably wishing that they had a chance in the in the sort of as they get closer to eighteen years old to show off and, and sort of mm. come into their own and really dominate. So um, yeah, I, I think for a Marco Rossi or an Alexi Lafreniere, it's it's probably not a huge deal just because. Marcos put up 120 points. Yeah, he's, he's, he's probably he's, fine he's, walking he's, away at this point. 
Yeah, he's he gets his if the season ends today, he gets the CHL's top scorer award. So I'm sure he's not too bummed out about that side of it. But um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I I don't really know who my answer would be in terms of who really benefits, other than maybe a kid yeah. like like Hendricks. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I wanted to get in to a couple stories you did recently. And one, I loved the behind the scenes access to those constant Badgers. Um, just first, could you take me through the concept, uh, you know, why you picked that team? And I think it's pretty obvious when you look at the roster, but what, what's the backstory to that one? Yeah, the backstory to that is uh, I try to do sort of one a year where I, one story a year where I reach out to a team or a player and, and do a sort of embed piece. I love doing immersive journalism and mm-hmm. really going into these players' lives and, trying to get a real sense for for what it's like beyond the X's and the O's and how good is he. And I try to tell the players when I arrive, like when with, with this team and, and some of their stars, I tried to be upfront with them very early on and just say, hey, look, I'm not interested in how good Cole Caulfield's shot is or how good Keandre Miller is or that kind of thing. I just want to get to know what your life is actually like because I think people don't have true access to that unless you're really involved in the hockey world. Um, so that was the idea. And then picking Wisconsin felt easy just because um, I knew early on in this season that if I was going to set something up, I would have to get a, ahead of it and, and really build the connection with the PR staff at the, not only the school, but the program and convince them that, hey, this is this is the goal. This is what I'm trying to do with this story. And Wisconsin felt at the beginning of the year, certainly when I reached out to them originally to set this up for February, um, they felt like the easy choice just because they were the most talked about team this summer. They had, obviously, huge star sort of level players in Alex Turcotte, Keandre Miller, and, and Cole Caulfield, and Dylan Holloway, who's a top prospect for the 2020 draft, and it just felt like there was a lot of buzz building around the team, and then it would be really interesting to see how that plays out, and then it was actually, I, I didn't, <laughs> frankly, I didn't expect it to go south like it did, but it, right. it almost benefited the story to me go in there, to have me go in there in February, where this team is in last place in the Big Ten, They've stumbled out of the gate. They're one of the two youngest teams uh, in all of college hockey and their age and all of that and expectations and all of that has quite frankly fallen flat. So now I was entering into this situation that I wasn't expecting to enter into at the start of the year where these kids not only have to deal with school and parents and life and expectations and their NHL clubs and injuries and all that, but they've also now got that second layer of of adversity where it it has really not gone well for them and, and they've they failed everyone's expectations. So it was, it was, it kind of worked out to be a really interesting story. And I was lucky that the school was so open to giving me that kind of access. Um, so sometimes that drama ends up being better, right? Like, so when I did the same thing at the U18s last year, I was yeah. sitting there going, Hey, I'm going to go write about the greatest American group of kids ever assembled that breezes its way to gold and then they lose to russia and i'm like oh i guess i can go home now but it ended up you know the fact that there was adversity and then you see how these kids respond to that adversity makes for a much better story i think right like just in in terms of narrative um you the the best part about this is is you get to see some personalities and there's some big personalities Mm -hmm. in that group um who stood out to you in terms of just watching how they operated behind the scenes Oh, they all did in their in their different <laughs> ways. I mean, it's you, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I've interviewed Cole probably a dozen times in the last couple of years, yeah. And he'd always presented himself, at least in scrums and at the combine and the World Juniors and all these kinds of events, as this very sort of well-spoken, articulate, um, almost reserved kind of personality. And then you see him in his setting, and. 
Cole, someone like Cole is a perfect example just because he's the loudest kid in the room. He's one of the youngest kids in the room, but he is, he's a mile a minute. He thinks he's hilarious. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Cockiness isn't the right word, but there's certainly an air of just comfort in who he is and, and where he operates within the room. And, um, but he, you all, I also learned a ton about him. I learned that he's one of the best students on the team and that, uh, while I was in the gym spending some time with a lot of the guys, he was in a dark room in their study center by himself working to get ahead of his work. And he's the kid who likes to get all of his work done for Wednesday so that he can spend Thursday preparing for their Friday, Saturday games. And um, so I, I, there was there was all sorts of different things that I learned about the, about the players. I learned on the flip side, someone like Keandre Miller has really struggled with school just because his focus is so much on the NHL and so much on really him and his relationship with his mom. He was raised by a single mother and he cares mm-hmm. deeply about supporting her. And he feels like getting to the NHL is his way of supporting her. And um, so he, his focus is somewhere completely different than someone like Cole. And um, he has really struggled and he's in a lot of online courses instead of live courses. And um, there, there, so there's all sorts of different layers. There's all sorts of different dynamics. Alex Turcott was dealing with a serious knee injury while I was there. And I knew that he had been out for the five games prior to my arrival, but there had been no reporting done on what specifically the injury was. Um, So it was interesting just to see him go through the rehab process and sort of navigate that and navigate an injury during such a crucial year for him. And he is one of those kids who just really wants to get back. There There were stories all of last year about this sort of mythical compete level that Alex Turcott has. And I learned when I was with him and with the team that that really does ring true. And he's one of those guys who every face-off, every drill in practice, uh, every video session, he's engaged more than the other players in the room. And he's curious and he he's just obsessed by hockey. So th- there's there was just so much. It was just a fascinating sort of experience. And then the, the one layer that I really wanted to get when I started the story was I really wanted to get into the classroom with with one of the kids. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the reason I reached out so early, just because I knew that there would need to be not just hockey program approval, but also school approval to do that. Um, and I got really lucky in that Ty Emerson, who's a, a now a Phoenix, or I almost said Phoenix Coyotes, an Arizona Coyotes prospect, um, his, his prof, uh, among the profs that they approached about doing it, his prof was one of the only ones who said he was open to it. So just getting that side of it and actually getting into the classroom with these kids and seeing how hard they work. Emerson's one of only two players on the team who was accepted to the business program at the school. And um, he he's as much as the NHL is also his focus relative to some of the other players on the team who will never play in the NHL. Um, his focus is also very squarely on school. And I, I spent some time with him and, and Keandre who share an apartment. And I went to their apartment and that kind of a thing. And you just get this entire different lens in terms of everything that these kids are juggling. And it's all very complicated for them. And it's easy to forget when we're talking about their NHL futures that these kids are 18, 19, 20 years <laughs> right. old. So I know. Uh, I think it gives you a little bit of perspective on, hey, there, there's just so much going on in these lives. Some of them have colds. Some of them are losing weight. Some of them are adding weight. There, there's just, they've got a lot to juggle. So it's it, that part of it was, was fascinating to me. And not only that, I mean, you, it, it, I love this because you do get a, a look at the, just how full their lives are. You, you know, you mentioned in the story, there's also 60 NHL representatives sitting in, in the stands <laughs> at every single Wisconsin home game. So, you know, not only do you, you got to get to your uh, economics class on time and pass that, um, you, you, everybody's watching you. And there was all this pressure on this team to begin with. Like there's, but, you know, and for a kid like Cole Caulfield, by the, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with being a Montreal Canadiens draft pick. 
But by the time he gets there, he's going to already have dealt with being, you know, one of the most favored U.S. teams of all time to go into a tournament. Um, you yep. know, the this Wisconsin, you know, playing there, dealing with the pressure there, dealing with sixty, you know, people in the stands that are watching his every move. Um, you know that that prepares you. That gets you know he'll be he'll be as ready as anyone can be to to walk into that market. Absolutely, and and just on on cold. I mean, one of the things I didn't even have a true appreciation of going in was that. Hockey players, in terms of the collegiate athletics world, have it a lot harder than basically every other student-athlete. They've got it harder than football. In football, you know what your route is. You know when you're going to be drafted. You know how you're going to get to the NFL. But when you're in school, school is squarely your focus. And it's the same in basketball. These kids, they declare out of basketball, so they're not drafted while they're in school, and their focus is squarely on, I need to win, I need to win March Madness or whatever their goal for their team is. Whereas for hockey, Cole showed up the last summer on his first day. They bring them in in the summer because they want them to, do, to get ahead of their classes and they want to sort of get onto the academic side of things before they enter their freshman year because they have certain credit requirements that they have to meet and it's very hard to do that when you're a student athlete. But Cole showed up on day one. On day two, he had his meeting with his academic advisor and on day three, he had to go to Plymouth for the World Junior Summer Showcase. He then came back from the World Junior Summer Showcase. He had right into prospect camps with the Montreal Canadiens. He had main camp with the Montreal Canadiens. He came back from that for a few weeks. Then he had to go uh, to Plymouth again for the World Junior Evaluation Camp. Then he had, in the middle of exams, with Miller and Emerson and Turcotte and all these other players and Dylan Holloway, who tried out for Team Canada, he had to then go off to the World Juniors. So these kids in the hockey side of things have it way harder because they're spending so much of their academic year away from their team. Like they just, they're constantly coming and going for commitments that have absolutely nothing to do with the Wisconsin Badgers. So they have to write their exams late. They have to basically for an economics course for Ty Emerson, he said he had to basically reteach himself all of the material because he'd been gone for six weeks in the middle of the academic school year. He hadn't been able to keep in touch with his professors like he'd hoped to. He was in the Czech Republic, and then suddenly he's back, and everybody else has written their exams, and these kids have to go alone to to write their exams on a on a whim, basically. So the academic side of it for people like Cole and, and Ty and Keandre and all those kids is just an uh, an entirely different world than even I thought I, I had a good sense of going in, and um, I, it really gives you some empathy for these kids and everything that they have to deal with on top of the what you mentioned, which is that there's a people in their ear constantly they're going for lunches with, <laughs> right. with nhl scouts and their nhl teams telling them to play a certain way and then their head coach with their ncaa team is telling them to do right. completely different things and it's just a completely different world i spoke with granado while i was there tony granado's the head coach of the team and he attended the school as a student athlete back in the day and he was an NHL pick and all that. And he said he had none of this. Like there was nobody watching his games. There was nobody texting him after his games with thoughts on how he played. And <laughs> he wasn't going for lunch with anyone. So it's just a completely different world for these kids nowadays. And there's a lot on their shoulders for sure. Um, well, it was awesome. And I would encourage anyone to check that out. If you go to The Athletic, um, search for Scott's stuff. It's it's a great story, great behind the scenes. You don't have to be a Wisconsin fan. You don't have to be a fan of Cole Caulfield or Alex Turcotte or K. Andre Miller. It's just a it's a great it's a great scene behind the scenes look um, at how that that a big program like that operates. 
Um, all right. So before we move on to other stories, Scott, I want to take a break here. Um, we get, we're sponsored by this episode, sponsored by the Black Tux, and I'm going to bring you along with me for this reading. How was your Let's How was it. your tuxedo experience when you got married? Was it a fairly painless or I actually painful? Didn't have, if I'm being If I'm being honest, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't go the tuxedo route. I just went the sort of classic navy blue suit route. Oh, you did. All right. So the black tux wouldn't have been for you. How did you that's 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 a bold move by you. I was a very traditionalist and had and it was I think the hardest thing for me was getting my, all my groomsmen measured. I remember that being a high mm. for for my at the time fiance now wife. It was like, "Hey, has Teddy gotten measured yet?" because we keep hearing from the tuxedo company that in in it was very to, at the time we were all in our I got married young, 23 and um, we were not I very well. responsible. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so the Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or a tuxedo. Oh, good. They do suits too, Scott. So you'd have been good for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? And I can feel for this. It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. I'm sure. I'm sure yours are very stylish, Scott. So I'm, I don't think this would have been an issue for you. No issues. <laughs> um, the other horrible review. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process, which would have relieved a lot of stress for my wife, that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, did you buy or rent? Did you you keep your suit? I, I bought. I've still got my suit. It's a, it makes frequent appearances at NHL games. These days. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, wow. You really dress up. You won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at Black Tux. So if you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code FULL60. That's theblacktux.com, code FULL60, numeral 60, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, so back at it, Scott. So the next story I wanted to get into you. I love these. I'm I'm always a um, I'm always a sucker for any t- type of redrafts or super early <laughs> reevaluations of drafts <laughs> yeah. because I mean, even as we talked about, if you miss a tournament, there's so much change in in, in a player's stock. Now we've actually had, you know, when you're talking about 18, 19 year olds, now that we have more time to evaluate, there was probably a lot of movement in the 2019 draft. And so uh, I would say about a week ago, even though it feels like 10 lifetimes ago, you posted a story, the risers and fallers since the 2019 NHL draft. Um, let's, let's, who, who in your mind, I don't think you necessarily documented it this way, but who, who's the biggest riser in your mind? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there are probably uh, two or three. I, I know I hate not giving one single that's guy, right. but there's. It's it. It really is very early. The 
the first person that always comes to mind for me, mostly just because I've been asked about him about 500 times on Twitter, is Nick Robertson, who has yes, lit yes. up the OHL this year and b- before the sort of pause, if you will, had 55 goals and was on pace to be the first 70 goal scorers since Eric Lindros and, and John Taveras. And uh, like his numbers were gross. They were in excess of what Alex Debrincat did and Alex Debrincat's numbers were gross. So it, right. it, he's probably the player. And I mean, I, we touched on it a little bit earlier in the show, but age is the thing that comes to mind with me and him right away, just because he was days away from being eligible for this draft. And I think mm. there are still teams that don't pay enough attention to age. And there really is a massive difference in last year's draft between someone like Raphael Lavoie, who was, basically a full year older than a Nick Robertson, right? And you have to take that in, into consideration when you're looking at their production and the numbers they're putting up and their play late and early in the season. And someone like Nick Robertson, he just has so much runway to just keep getting better and better. And you have to try to contextualize that, I think. And yeah. that has proven dividends for the Leafs this year. He was injured for much of last year. He's battled a rib and a wrist injury for much of his career. And that contributed to him falling. And then teams saw that he was five foot nine and he didn't have kind of gaudy numbers in the OHL and that contributed to him falling and the Leafs ended up getting him in the late second round and in a redraft today he's challenging for the top 10 he's in the teens for sure yeah. uh, and he might be sort of 10 11 12th overall at this point so he, he's definitely one that really really leaped out to me um, and then Connor McMichael who I also mentioned earlier in the show he's a, a, a great example just because I think he slipped a little bit largely because of of that weak playoff performance that I mentioned. And McMichael is a stud at this point. And and he's a player that I'll fully admit I I was way too low on him. I was even lower on him than where he was drafted. I had him as a second-round pick instead of as a late first. So um, he's he's a stud for sure. Um, But, I mean, you go up and down the list. There's there's just so many guys. Shane Pinto made a real statement – in the NCAA this year with North Dakota and also at the World Juniors where he sort of, <laughs> speaking of Cole Caulfield and Alex Turcott, worked his way onto the first line that they those players were probably supposed to be penciled in or penciled in for way ahead of a player like Shane Pinto. So it, it really is, there, there have been real shifts. These kids change pretty dramatically and uh, as early as it is and as, as much as it's only been a year since the draft, there have still been sort of major changes and some kids plateau and some kids take off. So it's it's an interesting exercise. Uh, no, it's great. I got to say the so Connor McMichael was selected number 25 overall. The Washington Capitals have and Ross Mahoney is a guy that's been running the draft for years. They've just made a living picking in the 20s. It's it's pretty <laughs> amazing how consistent if you go back through the years and the you know the, the the players they've selected in that range that ended up being like bonafide NHL players, uh, that hit rate's really high for them. Yeah, Pittsburgh comes to mind as another team. You look at last year's draft, they picked Samuel Poulain, and I loved Poulain and thought he was a fabulous player, but I think they picked him 21st overall, if I'm not mistaken. And Poulain is another one of those kids like McMichael that has just been unbelievable this year. And uh, if he hasn't improved his stock, he's at least proven that the Pittsburgh Penguins sort of hit there, even if he's not a home run. So uh, the Penguins and the Capitals really come to mind in that range. Like, they just... Hell, half the time the Penguins don't even have a first round pick. So you're talking second, third round picks, <laughs> right. and then they there's there have been a lot of hits there. And the Capitals, I almost had two players on my sort of ten risers list. In in this, another player they picked last year named Alexei Protas, who plays uh, with the Prince Albert Raiders, and 
he's six foot six and has just had an unbelievable year in the WHL. So hmm. he's a kid who they probably saw as a project that was worth sort of taking a chance on. And you don't see very many forwards in the NHL these days who are that size. Frankly, other than Boyle, there isn't any who are that yeah. size. So yeah. um, there's a, they took a huge risk on Protoss and on McMichael, and both of those have, have paid dividends so far. Um, the interesting thing is in the fallers category, and I don't want to give the whole thing away again, go, I would go to theathletic.com and, and check this out. Um, you have the top two picks in the draft. And so what I'm curious, because it hasn't gone as well as you, you would hope for those kids, again, starting out in the NHL, is there's a huge learning curve. How different does it, if at all, do you think the top three looks with a year, almost a year's worth of information? Oh, honestly, I don't think it looks that different. Okay. Um, despite the fact that I included them as as followers, I wanted to sort of build it with an asterisk, which basically said, I do think they would go one, two in the same order again. And yeah. Kirby Dak has probably played well enough to to merit going third overall again. Like, I don't think there's been a sort of cataclysmic shift with any of the players behind them. There are certainly players who've maybe in that 10 to 15 range who've moved into the top five and players in the top five who've maybe slid down to seven, eight, nine kind of thing, but no huge sort of massive shifts at the top of the draft. Um, but I, I definitely do think that it's important to say that as as much as Jack and, and Capo are up against tougher expectations and a tougher competition than any other players in their draft, I do still think it is a little bit of a disappointing year for them. Um, if, if they had finished out the year, they probably both would have finished around 30 points in, in 80, 81, 82 games. And uh, in, in today, by today's standards, for a first and a second overall pick, that's pretty disappointing. You look back at recent memory, and players like Neil Yakupov played considerably better than that. Yakupov had a shortened season due to the lockout, um, but I believe he had 30-something points, 35 points in 48 games or whatever it was that year. And um, Nolan Patrick was considered to be a little bit of a disappointing second overall pick, and he had 37 points in 80 games in his rookie season. So they've definitely they've they've had they've had to take their lumps here, and and it speaks to maybe my misevaluation of them too, frankly, because I thought they were maybe not going to be stars and and bona fide stars in the way that an Austin Matthews or a Connor McDavid was as soon as he entered the league. But I thought that Jack and Capo were both going to be sort of 50, 60 point versatile useful top six forwards at even strength who were dynamic on the power play and for for one reason or another both of them have struggled to become that so um they may not be fallers in terms of a redraft but they're definitely fallers in terms of my expectations and i think most people's expectations in what they would be this season so the good news is is that you've got to look no further than someone like andre svechnikov who in his right, first season had 37 points and mm-hmm. now he's a point per game player as a sophomore so I, I don't think that would be a crazy outcome for Jack or Capo to come back next year and and have huge years and put up 60 70 points in a season and be right back on track to the kind of players that we expect them to be but I did definitely expect both of them to have a little bit more of an impact this season than they did um, the other one I wanted to highlight is because I, I, I thought it was fascinating a couple of the picks in the draft where, where, where the defensemen went guys like Soderstrom and, and the guy that you you highlighted Philip Broberg um you know, he you you identified him as a faller, but what I'm curious about is, was that in relation to where he was picked or where you had him in your rankings? Because I think you had him. You, I can look at it. You had him at 19. Is that still the range you you like him right now, or where are you at on Philip Broberg, Edmonton Oilers pick? Yeah, I, I think he was 
kind of a late first rounder and I had him kind of as a mid first rounder at 19, but I think if you look back at it today, he's probably in the 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 kind of range. Like I think that's ultimately where he should have gone. I think in hindsight in a few years, even if Broberg becomes a good player and I do fully expect he'll become an NHL player. I think even if he does hit his ceiling, which is probably as a second pairing guy who can really skate, but doesn't really, play on the power play kind of thing um that that's a dis- that's a disappointment at eighth overall given how well every literally every single player around him <laughs> played this season i mean there isn't a player in that top 15 uh in last year's draft that you can look at and say that kid had a bad year and i don't think broberg had a bad year it's hard to say that an 18 19 year old had a bad year in the shl when he's an everyday player in a probably the third best pro league in the world um but he just didn't show the kind of upside and talent that a top 10 pick should. And I think that is true of basically only him in that top 15. I mean, Alex Newhook, who went 15th overall to the Colorado Avalanche, had an unbelievable, like just unbelievable freshman year in college. So yeah. uh, it, it was it was a really, really strong draft. And I always felt like Broberg was a bit of a reach there. And I think that was partly just because it was a forward-heavy draft, and we've talked about this before, but it was. I, th- I think in those forward-heavy drafts, mistakes are often made on defensemen. Right. I mean, every team will tell you we're drafting for you know best player available, but uh, you know I still think there's sometimes a, a need creeps into the decision. Yeah. Um, all right. La- last thing on that on that piece, and then we're going to move move to some questions we got from Twitter. You're picking number three overall. Top two is the same. You're the Chicago Blackhawks. Is Kirby Doc still your selection there, knowing everything we know right now? Probably not for me. Um, he's in the conversation. He's among the the sort of three or four players that I would discuss. But I think mm-hmm. when I look at that draft, I think of certainly Doc at third overall. I would begin to think about Trevor Zegras, who went ninth overall to Anaheim at third overall, given the yeah. year that he had. Um, and then Dylan Cousins and Alex Turcott, who were my third and fourth ranked players last year, I think I think are are still in that conversation. So Cousins had a brilliant year in the WHL. He's got everything you're looking for in a center in today's game. He's fast. He's big. He can score. He can make plays off the rush. He's learned to make plays off the cycle. So Cousins is a kid who I think that uh, is going to be a real steal if you can call him that for Buffalo at seventh overall. And then right. Turcott, despite the injuries, I think actually played quite well this year in, in a pretty tough circum- set of circumstances. And he had the flu early in the year and then an injury late in the year. And that was after he dealt with uh, an, <laughs> an unbelievable number of injuries and illnesses last year. So I still think Turcott's in that mix, but you, Doc's in there too. It's, it's probably Turcott, Cousins, Doc, and Zegris for me in that sort of three to six range now. Are you taking Cousins or Cider? I, I said the last question, but I lied. This is too much fun for me. Ooh, um, I would. Ugh, that's tough. Cider has <laughs> is another player I was wrong on, but probably Cousins. Frankly, I, yeah. I think you, there's more upside in him in terms of that. Maybe not true number one center, but you don't have to be in Buffalo with Jack Eichel there, and he's going to potentially be one of the better second line centers in the league as a result. So. They, they badly need that in Buffalo. And even mm-hmm. if it's not Buffalo, I still think Cousins has probably a, a little bit more upside than Cider, as good as Cider was this year and as good as I'm sure he's going to be. Um, all right. 
So last thing here, let's let's get to some questions on Twitter, which allows us to kind of run the gamut here in the last few minutes. Um, and this one is pretty timely. This comes from Joe Joe Falzen, I'm, and I'm probably going to butcher all these pronunciations, and I apologize to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, he says, how does your scouting differ when at a game in person or watching video, which we're, we're going to have to rely on pretty heavily now? Well, how, how is it different for you? Yeah, yeah that's it. Great question, and I think it's different in a lot of ways. Um, I, I do this annual scouting guide, which I, I find is a nice project for me to update every year and uh, also an, a nice way to sort of be transparent with our readers about my process and where my blind spots are. And one of the things I talk about every year in it is the difference between video and live. I think in live viewings, there's just a, a, an ability to see the play develop across the entire ice that you don't get over video. I think that would be the biggest advantage of a live viewing is, and at, at times it can almost trick you into thinking, oh, this player should be making this player, this player should be making that player. Right. Because when you're in the stands, you can see the plays that are developing two or three steps ahead of often where even the players on the ice see them. And you can see the routes that are available to players and you can see the structure really play out in a way that you don't, you can't truly capture on video. On the flip side, I think video can get a bad rap sometimes because I, I, I find video to be hugely advantageous. I love being able to go back during a viewing of a game and rewind and hit pause and slow the play down or, or what have you and, and sort of watch a sequence over because one of the disadvantages I think that's at play when you have live viewings is that you miss a lot. You you yeah. miss the mistakes and you can it, it can be easy to point at defenseman A who coughed the puck up in the defensive zone ahead of a goal and lose sight of the fact that defenseman A had three players on him because nobody in front of him gave him an outlet pass or right, right. Um, you, you can look at a mistake that a goalie makes on a save and not truly understand unless you go back and rewatch it, which often I don't do. I make the mistake of not doing if I was at the game live, I, I tell myself, Oh, I was there. I saw it. I don't need to go back and watch it kind of thing. And you, you just miss a lot when you're live. Um, the game moves so fast nowadays. I think oftentimes at the junior level, the game moves even faster than it does at the NHL level in these sort of track meet <laughs> 10-9 OHL games that you <laughs> right. see often these days. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot that changes. I love video because I love being able to go back and and sort of slow things down. But there's also something that you can't replace about the the full being able to see the full breadth of the ice when you're at a live game. Um, I also take a different approach. The big thing I do with video versus a, a live viewing is when I'm live, I try to watch a lot of players and focus in on a lot of players just because you can see the whole ice. You can see how everybody's reading and reacting to each other. And so when, when I'm at a game and I've got my notes in front of me and I'm watching a, a live viewing, I'll have sort of four or five, maybe six or seven in a game if there's a lot of high-end talent in the game, players that I want to really sort of focus in on on the ice and sort of isolate them when I'm watching Whereas when I'm watching on video, I'm normally only focused on one player. So right. when I'm watching TPS or Turku or whoever play in Finland or Sweden or wherever, I'm no, even if there's three or four players on a team that I really want to pay attention to, quite frankly, I'm normally only watching one player on the ice at, at a time just because of that isolated view that you have. And um, So that that's a big difference. When I'm live, I, I try to watch a lot more players, and I think you can get a better sense for a lot more players live versus video. I... I I'm I'm isolating my myself and and really dialing it in on on one maybe two players in a game. Uh, awesome. All right. This question comes from at Anthemius twelve. 
and again, it's timely because we don't know the status of the NHL Combine. What tests at the NHL Combine do teams pay the most attention to, if any? And I can tell you, I've gone probably for the last at least 10 years to the Combine. And and just to give people an idea, yeah, I mean, you have like the bike, the whatever, there's a VO, whatever it's called, the bike tests and the pull-ups. You have all these physical tests. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, but I always get the sense from teams, to them, it's the interview and the opportunity to sit down with these these players, uh, you know, with the, with the group and the scouting staff, that seems to be the that 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 seems to be the more important thing I I, I sense from from teams. What, what what do you think? What's the most important thing yeah, teams are getting? From the I would totally agree. I think there are certain players who perform really poorly at the combine in the testing, and certain players who perform really well. Yeah, where that might be a, a note that's worth filing into 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 your sort of bank of notes on a player's in your book on a player. Um, there are routinely every year, there's probably three or four players who you go through the 12 or 15 tests that these kids get put through and you'll see the same two or three names in those top 10 results that they release publicly through central scouting. And I think those are the kids who, who might do themselves some favors in terms of the testing, but I don't think there's any one specific test. I mean, I'm certainly, there's teams that probably care more about some of the sort of agility tests that they do. They do a lot of uh, running and touching now and, and sort of changing directions now, which I think might translate better than uh, some of the other sort of chin-up tests and that kind of a thing <laughs> right. that they still do. Um, but I'm sure teams p- pay attention to Wingate and VO2 Max and all of those things. I, I think they do care about those when they're going to test a player. But I, I think if a, if a player really fails the test, like if a player really, really struggles on the Wingate and, that, and his endurance is drawn into question or... Uh, even little things like the the body mass index that they do of these players. Mm. Like if there's a player that's a, a little bit overweight, I'm sure teams take note of that. Or if there's a player that's really underweight, I'm sure teams take note of that. But ultimately, I think it's probably it's probably the interviews that they put the most sort of credence into and actually sitting down with the players and getting to know them and um, asking them questions you haven't been able to ask them previously in the year during visits with scouts and Right. Uh, I think those interviews are, are what ultimately moves the needle more than anything. Right. All right. And then last one. Well, you touched on this a little bit. So somebody did ask about Hendrix Lapierre. Uh, what round do you expect him to get picked? What, what, did you settle on an answer there based on what we know now? I still think he's going to be a first round pick. First round um, pick? Okay. He's not going to be a top 10 pick like he probably could have and would have been if he'd stayed healthy all year. Um, but I still think there's going to be a team that's going to say, Hey, we, we, we've got to take a chance on this kid in the sort of mid to late first round. So I would imagine he doesn't slip into the second round. All right. And then the last one, this comes from, uh, Michael, uh, a Tuke at, at a Tuke says besides Drysdale and you and I have talked about this a little bit, who are the other top D prospects to look out for in this year's draft class? So who are your top couple that, that you, you like besides Drysdale? Yeah, that's a, another great question and something that will probably be a common one. Uh, yeah. I think Jake Sanderson, we've talked about Jake before, yep. but I think Jake Sanderson with the National Development Program has worked his way into that conversation as the year has, has sort of progressed here and as things have begun to shake out and we've begun to get sort of a better sense of the defenseman in this draft. But quite frankly, there are there's a number, like I'm talking six, seven, eight defensemen who could be the second defenseman off the board in this draft. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's a, it's a big list. I personally believe right now, and it's close. There's a, a number of other players I wouldn't blink at, but I personally believe that a smaller Swedish defenseman by the name of Emil Andre is my, probably going to be my number two 
uh, in the sort of my final ranking that I release in May, although that may change now that uh, <laughs> we don't know when the combine or the draft and all that's going to play out. But Abel Andres, yeah. he's five foot nine, which is going to raise some eyebrows, but um, he's he's got it all. He's physical. He's really th- sort of built really thick for his age. Um, and he's defensively, he's extremely mature defensively. And I, I said that about, about um, Quinn Hughes throughout his draft year and concerns about his size. Like if, if you can defend, you can defend. And if you can skate off the rush and keep an active stick and disrupt opposing puck carriers and all that, then there are options for you. So I think uh, Andre is a kid who I really like, especially because he, he's physical for his size and he can really move. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, Sanderson certainly in that conversation. There's a couple of defensemen out of the queue, particularly Jeremy Poirier, who again is another smaller defenseman, and that seems to be the way it's going. But Poirier's got ridiculous offensive upside. His defensive game still needs a lot of work, but his his skill with the puck is is high, high, high end. So he'll be a first round pick as a defenseman. Lucas Cormier is another queue player in, in that sort of same vein. Um, so there's, there's a number of how there's Helge Granz is on the bigger side of things. If, if teams are looking for a sort of six, three, six, four player, Helge Granz is another, um, Swedish defenseman who's got a lot of upside. So it, it's an interesting draft that way, just because I don't think any of those five or six names that I just rattled off are, are sort of top 10 worthy picks. But as me, both of us have talked about on this, on this podcast before, like that you're never going to have one defenseman go in the top 10, top 15. So there's right. going to be some names that I think are sh- sort of more in that 15 to 30 range who are going to slide up and make things really interesting. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for doing this. And uh, it, was, it was good. It was good to talk about something besides uh, COVID for a few minutes. It was awesome. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, it's going to be the next few months are going to be interesting times, but the draft is happening one way or another. So, Right, right. Awesome. Well, be safe out there and we'll catch up soon. Likewise. I want to thank Scott again for joining the podcast. Those are always fun to do. They've been really well-received, well-listened to. And um, as Scott said, there's going to be a draft, or most likely there's going to be a draft in some form. And interest in that continues to be high. And I'm looking forward to doing this as, as we get closer and closer to that draft. So thanks again, Scott, for doing that. If you want to check out any of Scott's work, really the best way to do it would be to Google The Athletic and Scott Wheeler and go right to his author page. And there's going to be a list of all the stories that we talked about. Um, I, if you haven't read that Wisconsin piece, I would start there. That that was really well done by Scott. A lot, lot of um, advanced planning went into that. A lot of hard work in reporting and writing it and editing. And it turned out really well. So I would um, strongly suggest you do that. And if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic and you want 40% off, go to theathletic.com slash full 60 and you can get 40% off a subscription and read all of Scott and my and everyone else's work at The Athletic. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for listening. Be safe out there, and we'll catch you later in the week.